1: So we're the Austin family. Uh, My name is Josh, and that's my wife Nikki. We have two kids, uh, Toby and Hazel. Toby just went into the junior high program, and Hazel is um, stepping into the program next year. As God is transforming my heart, um, our hearts, uh, any opportunity to give what we have back, like the example in Acts, um, or the example that Jesus has set uh, to his disciples, just If you can, whatever you've been given, uh, use that to give back to the church body. So I think serving other people, um, Jesus was a servant leader. Uh, There wasn't any task that was too little, um, too menial for him. As he's transforming our heart, I feel like we need to, through that strength, um, just take that posture of loving other people through actions of whatever gifts, talents, abilities you have been given. One of the biggest part of service for me is because of what Jesus did for us on the cross and the incredibly high price that he paid for us. Our natural response is to just
2: open up our life and our hands to whatever he needs, and so that we can be a tool that he uses to impact someone else. And I think for our kids, seeing that we're broken people still. We don't have it all together. We don't know all the answers. We make mistakes with them, but that Jesus is constantly redeeming all of us and we're on a journey with him of
1: sanctification and bringing us closer to him and that we can still be
2: used by him as we're broken people.
0: We're the the Austins and and we've we've been been made made
2: new. new. Little like video snippets been just kind of cool, just to like see what God's doing in the lives of people. Um, I want to say first off, thank you so much. We uh, we have a team of teaching pastors here at the chapel, and I've been off for like two weeks, so I've been doing some other stuff. And it's just great to know, um, and this is not me just being political about it, it is very, very great to know that um, all of our teaching pastors here will bring the word of God on Sunday morning, and yeah. (laughs) I love that, and so unfortunately you're stuck with me for a little while here for the duration, but it'll be good, I promise. So um, here's the funny thing. Uh, this is the fourth week in our five-week series called Made New, and it's just been this kind of glimpse of the fundamentals of discipleship. What does it really mean to follow Jesus? And this is kind of this quick sprint for, for five weeks. Um, I've really enjoyed this, this series, even preparing for it, and then hearing uh, just how God's Word's been proclaimed, because if you're like me... And I'm willing to bet you might be. We need this like tune up every once in a while, don't we? Just in our our walk with Jesus. We need kind of a 30,000 mile checkup just to make sure everything's running right. So, quick little review of where we've been. Uh, Week one, we talked about identity and what it means to be adopted as a child of God. And then uh, week two, our student ministries pastor Alex Cook brought us really close to what it means to be a worshiper of Jesus and that our lives are about worship. And then last week, our executive pastor, Dave Short, talked about what it meant to be a family member in the family of God with all its beautiful complexity. And I've really enjoyed uh, not just preparing, but also hearing in those. So today we're talking about servanthood, as you may have guessed. So God's Word teaches us that if we were to follow after Jesus, we don't live our lives with our noses in the air and our chests puffed out. We actually live with our heads bowed and our knees bent. But it's kind of funny, and um, you can't really talk about servanthood without killing it. We were talking with even Josh and Nikki uh, ahead of time, and they're like, Gosh, I hate that you have to show this video of us. It's just so. Because as soon as you showcase it, you put it in the spotlight, it becomes like, Well, wait a minute. It almost gets poisoned, right? Because you put it up front to say, This is what servanthood looks like. We just kind of want you to sort of see it. And then it immediately becomes pop. And probably like no other virtue in the Christian life, when you talk about servanthood, it gets a little uncomfortable because when you showcase it and it becomes popular, it almost loses its power. So today, actually, in God's word, we're going to take a look of servanthood from a negative example. Two presumptuous brothers with a very forthright and daring mom who come to Jesus seeking greatness, and they leave with humility. So we're going to be in Matthew chapter 20. You can turn there, flip there, scroll there, whatever. You can follow along on the screens behind me if you like. But before we get to Matthew chapter 20, we need to understand what's going on around it. Because this little band of disciples, these 12 best buddies... This tightly woven group are starting to come apart at the seams. Remember, these guys have been together for three years now. They've seen Jesus teach on hillsides and feed thousands of people. They've watched him heal. They've watched him restore. They've watched these amazing things happen because of this first century Jewish carpenter turned rabbi named Jesus. But the threads that bind them together are starting to fray and unravel. Here's what's up. Matthew 20 drops us into the last few weeks of Jesus' life. And with the, the pressure mounting, there's four scenes that have kind of happened that have led to Matthew 20. So I want to hit them really quick just for context's sake. First, a while back, Jesus gathers his disciples together while they're walking along the road like they usually do. And he asks them a very direct question. He says, who do you guys say that I am? Which is a really good question, because if you don't see Jesus right, nothing else makes sense in your life, right? And so Peter, who's the loud mouth, he's always the first one to speak. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, way to go, Peter. Good job. You've got it right. Peter, whose name sounds like the Greek word for rock, interestingly enough. Jesus then says, on this rock, I will build my church. Like, whoa, strong words for Peter. A couple of days later, they're having a similar conversation, and Peter has something kind of check in his spirit a little bit. Jesus has changed the way that he's teaching. He's reemphasizing things. Here's where it drops us. This is Matthew 16, just a little context. It says this, From that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and scribes, and be killed, and then on the third day be raised. And Peter... remember Peter. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Quick aside, if you're going to rebuke Jesus, be really, really careful about what you're about to say. Here's what he says. Far be it from you, Lord. This should never happen to you. Here you go, Peter. Just charging in. But he turned and he said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. You're not setting your mind on the things of God but on the things of man. As if to say, Peter, if you seek to separate who I am from what I've come to do, you might as well be working for the other team here, Peter. This isn't how this works. I know you love me. That's great. But are you serving yourself, or are you really serving me? And so Jesus redirects Peter in the second scene, and you have to know there's no way the other 11 didn't hear that. Six days go by, and then Jesus takes his core team, his inner circle, his team captains, Peter, and then two brothers, James and John, up on a mountaintop retreat. This happens in Matthew 17, just kind of cruising along. Here's what the story says. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, led them up to a high mountain by themselves. He was transfigured before them, means his, his appearance looked completely different. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, why is he always the first to speak up? What's with this guy? I can't relate to him at all. Anyway. He says, Lord, it's good that we're here. Thanks for the nod, Peter. Just my little addition there if you wish we'll make three tents for you one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah what's going on with Peter here right remember he's been publicly affirmed and then publicly kind of shamed this is his chance to get back to center with Jesus Lord it's good that we're here here's what I want to do for you and this time James and John are here to watch it so what happens while he was still speaking a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. So the host of heaven interrupts loud Peter as if to say, Look, just look at Jesus. This is the one you need to look to. More strong words. Fourth and final scene before we get to Matthew chapter 20. Coming back into town, the emotions in the disciples' pressure cooker was heating up and reaching this unavoidable boiling point until the instapot explodes in Matthew chapter 18, verse 1. Here's the question. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and said, Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And I, I think there's a little exasperation under there where it's like, Jesus, okay, we're so lost on this. What does it mean to be great in your eyes? We've been walking with you for three years, Jesus What does it mean to be great? Peter's clearly not getting it, but like for the rest of us, what does it mean to be great? Here's what Jesus does. Calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly, unless you turn and become like children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like a child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Strong words. Those four scenes are all intro. They build the frame for the picture that we have to look at this morning. Because like many of us, passion for Jesus isn't the problem. But posture before Jesus So with storm clouds gathering on the not-so-distant horizon and the winds of change starting to blow and the cords of unity starting to unravel more and more by the minute, something happens in Matthew chapter 20 that breaks and blows everything wide open. And that brings us to Matthew chapter 20, verse 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, just so you know, came up to him, that's Jesus, with her sons. And kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one on your right hand and one on your left, in your kingdom. Jesus answered, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And they said to him, we are... So Israel's leading contender for mother of the year approaches Jesus with her sons, James and John, presumably on either side, and she just kneels. She doesn't say anything yet. She just kneels, which is probably like a genuflect for somebody that you would recognize as king, just kind of showing homage. Then, noticing this, Jesus asks the question, what do you want? We probably shouldn't read any condescension in there. He's not being accusatory, not yet. It's interesting to me. Remember, he's God. you got to remember that when you're reading the Gospels. He knows why she's asking what she's about to ask. He knows exactly what she's going to say, and he lets it play out anyway. So what's the ask? In verse 21, what do you want? And She says, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit on your right and your left hand. So what's that about? A couple of things. In ancient royal courtrooms, the seats to the right and to the left of the ruler are the most powerful, the most trusted, and the most influential seats in the kingdom, the side of the ruler. It's kind of like where we get the phrase, my right-hand man. This is somebody who so gets what I'm about that if something were to happen to me, they could take over. Okay, that's interesting considering the recent shift in Jesus' teaching to include about how he must suffer and die. And so seeing the storm clouds on the horizon, maybe there's a little bit of anticipation here. This is a question about influence. It's a question about leadership. It's a question about success and greatness. Jesus, which of these 12 are most like you? Jesus, if something were to happen to you... Who could step up? Jesus, you've been saying some weird things recently, and who's your most likely successor? Can we have this conversation now, Jesus? Because we have to put a plan together. This would be like two sons coming to visit their father in the hospital when he's dying and saying, Hey, Dad, when you're gone, who gets the boat? Okay, that's a little offensive. It's a little hurtful. It's totally missing the point. But here's the interesting thing. If you read that right, it doesn't even read like a question, does it? Look at it again. what she say? She says, Jesus, say this. Jesus, do this. Do you want to be in a position where you're bossing around the second person of the Trinity? I don't think so. But she just like charges right in. She goes, Jesus, do this for me. Say this. It's not a question. It's really bold. It's really in your face. And it's really presumptuous. But here's what's most troubling for me when I read that, is she has enough faith to believe that the kingdom is coming, right? Like, she bowed to Jesus when he was there. Like, and she even says, when your kingdom comes, like, she has enough faith to believe that Jesus is about to set all things right and he's gonna do some amazing things, but she needs additional assurance that her sons will be treated well when it does come. She wants to know that kingship for you means kickback for me. You ever feel like that? Not out loud. Of course you don't. We're too modest for that. (laughs) But there's the crux of the conflict. Because if there's anything that sours servanthood, it's doing the right thing for the wrong reason. Serving with wrong motives. But now watch what Jesus does next. This is really, really cool. There's a shift that's about to come, and I want you to catch it. Um, it's the it's, it's shift that's kind of hidden in the English, but in the Greek, which is the original language of the New Testament, it's really, really apparent. This is a shift that would have been very clear to Jesus' original hearers, these 12 guys plus one ambitious mom, and it would have been very, very apparent to Matthew's original readers. So here's the shift. In the English language, the word you can mean two different things. So if I looked at Bill and just said, Bill, I'm really grateful for you. How many people am I talking about? One, okay? But if I extended my arms and said, I'm really grateful for you, now how many people am I talking about? Right? A lot more, right? Here's the curious thing, though. It's the same word. I even had the same sentence. So how do you know what I mean? You know by how I said it. Okay? And yes, I know the South has cleared up this grammatical unclarity by inventing the word y'all. And you ins, which is like y'all plus four or something like that. But like here's the thing. In Greek, there's two different words for you. There's you singular and you plural. Now keep tracking with me for a minute. Way back, at the beginning of this whole scene, when the mom approaches Jesus, and Jesus asks her the question, he says, what do you want? That's you singular. But then here when we get to you or verse 22 he switches. The you that starts out that verse is you plural. Take a look at it again, verse 22. This is super important and we've got to get it because it helps to frame everything that's about to happen. Jesus answered, you plural don't know what you are asking follow me after all of this just tumbles out after this ambition and this question and this presumption is just out there on the table jesus make sure that they're great what jesus does Jesus zooms out, he lifts his eyes, he widens his gaze, and what once was a private conversation with a very forthright mom becomes an indicting inquisition of two prideful sons who should have known better. This really would read, you two, you two who know me, you two who've watched me, you two who've listened as I've taught, you two who've walked with me for three years, you two who should have known better, you two don't know what you're asking. And then their question (laughs) that Jesus asks, he says, are you able to drink the cup that I'm to drink? And in the Old Testament, the image of cup always comes with wrath and suffering and hardship we know what Jesus is alluding to because in the rearview mirror we know he's talking about the cross. And then these two, with prideful presumption, comes their answer at the end of verse 22: "We are able." Hmm. And you can almost feel these eager smiles start to form at the corners of their mouths, like their eyes start to brighten a little bit as their hope rises. Like, oh man, loudmouth Peter is on the outs with Jesus. This is our time to slide in. James looks at John, and he goes, I know, little brother, we're almost in there. John nudges James. He goes, I know, no more cleaning and gutting fish for us all day. We're just about there. We are able. Quick side note. You should be very careful how you use those three words, I am able. Three words that tip of the hand of the arrogant and the prideful personal aside for me few things scare me more than an inaccurate assessment of my ability and yet how quickly and thoughtlessly those words tumble out of their mouths without any hesitation without any thought without any self-awareness whatsoever we got you Jesus we're there but I'm right there with them aren't you? you shouldn't be so hard on them we're human We suffer from this damning overestimation of what we can do and a perilous under-evaluation of what we can't do. And in the economy of Christ, my ability is actually a liability and my inability actually becomes a virtue. Weirdly paradoxical, isn't that? And so what comes next is Jesus doing what Jesus does best. He gives them nothing that they want to hear, but everything that they need to hear. And so with the intention of these two out in the open and the ears of the other 10 beginning to perk up, Jesus drops a dump truckload of theology on these two that is one part personal prophecy about their future and then another part rebuke. Verse 23, he says to them, you will drink my cup. James, who would die a martyr's death within a few decades, and John, who would be sent to exile on the island of Patmos. You will drink my cup, this is coming for you. But to sit at my right hand and my left is not mine to grant, it's for those who the Father has been prepared by my Father. And I absolutely love what Jesus does here. What's he saying? I'm not going to be the judge in your little awesomeness contest. I'm not going to deliberate between who is best. This thing that you want, this bit about greatness, that's not up for me to decide anyway. That privilege belongs to my father. You figure out the kind of person he wants you to be, which you should know already, James and John. You figure out what he aspires to cultivate in people. Learn about the kind of person that he lifts up. What does that person look like? Go and do that. You don't know what you're asking. You want to drink my cup? You will. Suffering is coming. But this bit about greatness, it's not like you think. (laughs) And as those words leave Jesus' lips, all the hope filled helium balloons start to fall to the floor. Those eager smiles that were tugging up at the corners of their mouths fade and fall away. And those eyes that were so bright, ready to bask in the master's favor, fall with humble sobriety. Isn't Jesus a masterful teacher? He takes this seemingly innocent conversation, turns it inside out, reveals it for what it is, and shows them the heart behind it. And now that he has them right where he wants them, he's ready for the lesson. And so, with their tail very much between their legs, these two presumptuous brothers are about to become the unwitting object lesson for what Jesus thinks real leadership and servanthood looks like. Verse 25. But Jesus called them to him, as if to say, hey, huddle up, get in here. Here's what he says. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. Stop. It shall not be so among you. This business about the Gentiles, this is Jesus saying, hey, do you know the Romans with their super like, intimidating war machine? Not so among you. Remember the Greeks with their elitist philosophy schools when everyone was trying to be better than everybody else? Not so with you. Remember the Egyptians with their super impressive architectural masterpieces? Not so with you. All scratching and crawling their way to significance and notoriety and fame and achievements. Not so with you. There should be a fundamental difference between who the world thinks is great and who you think is great. There should be a fundamental difference between what they are about and what you are about. They are about themselves, and you have a different starting point and a different ending point, so look different in the middle. We don't climb ladders. Upward mobility is not our thing. That's what doesn't, that doesn't drive us. That's how they do it. Not so among you. You 12. You 12 should be content to fade away in the fog of simple faithfulness to be obscured by a cloud of consistent obedience and even run the risk of being written off as unimpressive by the world if it means you gain Christ. Well, if we're not supposed to seek those things, Jesus, what are we supposed to seek? What does greatness even look like? As if they forgot the child from like a week ago. And so Jesus, being merciful, re-ups in verse 26. He says, it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Jesus is using a teaching tactic here called parallelism. It's a poetic device where he basically says the same thing twice to emphasize his point. He says, if you want to be great, serve. If you want to lead, kneel. Well, how far, Jesus? Surely this can't go on forever. One day you're going to get us up off of scrubbing floors and get us our seat at the table? Come on, Jesus. How much is enough? How far is too far? Surely there's something waiting for us. One day, Jesus, come on. And then what follows is what grammarians call an extent clause. It means here's how far. Verse 28, even as the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. How far should you go? How degrading? That's how far. Mic drop moment from Jesus. And when the curtain falls on this scene, the lights go down, Matthew's gospel just moves on. There's no like little stop. This just kind of like hangs there for a while. This awkward irresolution of unresolved tension. Two very embarrassed brothers and 10 others wondering what they're supposed to do next. Fast forward two days. Those storm clouds out on the horizon have gotten a little bit closer. We are hours away from the cross. And these 12 have now gathered in an upper room for dinner. And Jesus does the unthinkable. Just listen to this. This comes out of John 13. Before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper... And wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. I don't think we understand how jaw-dropping that would have been to see. God washing their feet. Does that sound backwards? <laughs> the hands that formed the first man from dust now wipe dust off the feet of his friends. The creator's fingers that formed out rivers and oceans now drip with water from a borrowed basin. God washes the feet of 12 men, one who's going to deny him, one who's going to betray him, all of whom, like us, are equally Undeserving. And he does it anyway. That's unthinkable. One of my favorite preachers, Kent Hughes, describes the scene like this. I just want to read this to you because it's so good. In the breathless silence of that upper room, the apostles heard the trickle of water as it was being poured, the friction of the towel as their feet were wiped off, the sound of the master's breathing as he moved from one to another. And then he said, Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, so also should wash one another's feet. I have set an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth. No servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. That's John 13, 14 through 16. Hughes continues, Jesus used the ancient logic. If it is true for the greater, Jesus that it must be true for the lesser, us. It's always a powerful argument, but coming from infinitude, it is infinitely compelling. If the God of the universe is a servant, how dare we, his creatures, be anything less? Wow. So how do we get there? I mean, like, that's the vision, that's the idea. How do you get there? Because I read stuff like this, we got these this terrible example in James and John, right? And I'm like, I, I, I kind of get that, I kind of get that, and then you've got this like incredible, unreachable example in Jesus, where you're like, I don't know how you have that kind of humility. So like, how do you get from where we are today to there? And I wrestle with these texts and the implications for what this means for me, like in my life personally. I try to work these truths in. I think the gospel invites us to make three choices. And this will be the last like eight to 10 minutes or so in our time together. This is what we're supposed to do with this. Three choices. First choice. The gospel invites me to choose security over reward. Choose security over reward. There's something very alluring about a worldly reward, isn't it? Like rewards feel good. It feels good to get a little pat on the back every once in a while. You want a little bit of that attaboy. Just the act of serving itself can feel good, right? I've had a lot of people say that where it's like, I just want to do this thing and it just helps you. It makes me feel good to serve. I just like serving, right? Maybe that's the reward in itself, just doing the right thing. But I think reward, if we're not careful, can also bring a sense, false sense of security. And I think we need to talk about that. Example, like you do a good job at work you get a nice bonus on your after your performance review. You feel a little bit more secure in your job. Right? If you're married, you do the dishes at home or you do whatever, and then like the spouse pays you a nice compliment. Like you feel a little more secure in your marriage, don't you? There's an unhealthy formula underneath that, and it goes like this: My action plus their affirmation equals my security. My action plus their affirmation equals my security. And that is well and good for performance reviews at work. It is kryptonite for biblical servanthood. Doesn't work that way. Here's the difference. We need to be very careful how we complete this sentence. I'm serving so that versus I'm serving because. The first one implies reward. The second one implies security quick example of what I mean by this. From time to time, um, I meet with folks for counseling, and we're just like walking through stuff together, just like the the hard stuff in life. And whenever I'm working through something that, that feels a lot of like insecurity, I ask a very common question, and it's a very revealing question, because I ask it of myself a lot. Here it is. When your Heavenly Father thinks about you, what does his face look like? Here's why that's a revealing question. Is he scowling? Is he disappointed in you? Is he just like face-palming? Like, oh, I don't think you get it. Here's why this is important. If you are clothed in the righteousness of Christ, it is theologically impossible for you to be a nuisance to God. Okay? That's a big deal. If you have Christ's righteousness on you, he can't be angry with you anymore because Christ took the wrath. For you. That means, then, that you are an adopted child of God who is loved securely. You are always welcome in his presence. You are never a bother to him. The Old Testament says he sings songs over you. How tender of an image is that? That's how God thinks about you, and to think otherwise would be to cheapen Christ's righteousness as though there was something missing that you could somehow make up. That's the good news of the gospel. Security. Now, here's how that relates to servanthood. Earthly reward becomes a roadblock to serving when it becomes the reason for serving. I'll say that again because it's really important. Earthly reward, what I get out of it, becomes a roadblock to serving when it becomes the reason for serving. Put another way, you'll never serve freely if you're looking to get something out of it because then there's strings attached to it. But here's the gospel. When I serve because of who Jesus says I already am. When I serve because of who I am in Christ, without thinking of the reward, because I've been adopted as a child of God, and that is reward enough. You see the difference? Serving because is way more freeing than serving so that. That's the first choice. The gospel invites us to choose security in Christ over the rewards of the world. Choice number two. The gospel invites us to choose cooperation over comparison. And this one comes right out of the text, right? These two slow to get their brothers. There's a hidden assumption lurking in the shadows behind their mom's presumptuous question. And here it is. Jesus, Um, we're really better than these other guys. Peter, like, clearly doesn't get it. The rest of these guys kind of seem like no names. We can't quite put our finger on what's going on with Judas. You may want to check into that. He's a little off. But we're, you yeah, know, we're pretty good. It's our time. <laughs> and to their credit, they're not wrong. Like every gospel account shows James and John with like this crystal clear, sterling reputation. They've done great up to this point, which is what makes this so appalling to me. Well, what happened? Their focus shifted. They started looking at what other people weren't doing rather than on who they were becoming. Comparison. They shifted to think on what are these people not doing rather than who they were becoming. Tell me if this has ever happened to you. I'm willing to bet it has. You see something that needs done and something inside of you says, I see that needs done, but I'm not going to do that because not everybody else is pulling their weight around here, so why should I? (sighs) Sorry, this has got like really close to home for me, so. Right? You will never serve others if you're focused on what others are not doing. Gospel says I have nothing to lose by serving because I'm not really trying to be better than anybody anyway because I'm equally undeserving Biblically, servanthood is not a competition between two equally undeserving sinners. It's cooperation where undeserving sinners showcase an all-sufficient Savior, amen? It's a big difference. So that's choice number two. The gospel invites us to choose cooperation over comparison. Choice number three, the gospel invites us to choose anonymity over recognition. I tried to spell anonymity like 60 times when I was writing this message, and I could never get it right. Thank God for spell check. Ronald Reagan was a master of one-liners, and one of my favorites of his is this. There's no limit to what a man can do if he doesn't care who gets the credit. Good, right? Because we all want the applause. Maybe a little. Just a bit. I mean, we're really modest people, right? We don't want the red carpet. We don't want the fanfare. We're not a bunch of egomaniacs, right? Well... I want a little thank you, a little recognition, a little pat on the back. But here's what I've noticed about this hunger for recognition, at least in me, just to be candid. The hunger for recognition only grows one way. It only gets deeper. No singer wants smaller stages. No performer wants less applause. According to the world, servanthood means more. You're doing your job, it's up and to the right, more. But then can't you hear Jesus' words reverberating back in there? Not so with you. Not so with you. Our quiet success obsession prevents servanthood because servanthood actually says you will do greater things for less recognition. So what do I mean by anonymity? I mean doing the right thing and telling no one. Really hard to do really hard to do. Anonymity means I care more about what needs done than the recognition that comes with having done it. Now, why is that so hard? Because we're all so prideful. I'm right there with you. So let's just kind of let our bellies out a bit and go, yeah, I am. I've got a touch of that. So here's my challenge on this one for this week. If you want a quick little takeaway, find the chore at home. Find that thing that nobody wants to do. Do it and tell no one. Scrub the toilet bowl. You're laughing because it's true, right? Chisel boogers off the like bottom of the shower. Oh, right, like you're so holy. Okay. Never happens in your house. Find that thing that nobody wants to do and do it and tell no one. Here's my promise. You will emerge more secure. You will emerge humbler. You will emerge more quiet. And you will emerge happier than when you went in. And here's what actually gets even cooler. Is when that posture becomes a part of your life, And it spills the banks of your family to include your friends and your neighbors. Because they got nasty stuff on their shower floor too. And not just literal stuff. Serving others when nobody else wants to. You can get there. The gospel invites us to choose anonymity over recognition. But now here's the thing. Everything I've said for the last 38 minutes is not that profound. Everything up until this point is not that revolutionary. Up until now, you can walk out of here this morning having heard a pretty decent motivational speech on serving, and you could go home going, okay, yeah, like, serve more. I get it. I'm going to try harder. I'm going to do the disgusting things. But I don't want to be guilty of giving a motivational speech and using the Bible as a platform, because that's not what we do, because that's not enough. What does the gospel have to say about this? This is, first and foremost, a gospel-centered issue, There's something else we've really got to talk about, and it's the key to unlocking free servanthood. And it's found right at the end of this passage. Again, Matthew 20, verse 28. We glanced at it. I want to hit it really quick as we wrap up. Matthew 20, verse 28 says this. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Here's what that means. The only motivation for serving anybody, anytime, anywhere, is because you know that you are a recipient of God's free grace shown in the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. It's the only reason for doing it. Otherwise, it's just behavior modification, trying to make us more moral, better-feeling people. That's not why Jesus died. The only reason to serve anybody is because of what Jesus has already done, his work on the cross. What work? This is the gospel of servanthood, that God saw my need and stepped up and said, I will take care of it. In the cross, Jesus displays the full extent of his service to us. He brings my inability right close to his profound ability He brings my deepest need, restoration with the Holy God, right close up to God's grace. And more than anything this morning, you need to know that. You need to know that God loves you enough that he sent his son to serve you when you deserved it the least. And that's the gospel. If you feel like nothing you ever do is good enough, it's because it isn't feel like the harder and harder you try, the worse off it gets. It's because it does. If you feel like you'll never be enough, give enough, do enough, it's because you can't. It's the gospel. The ironic thing about this morning is this is not about a message about how to go be a good servant. This is an expose of the only servant who ever served anybody with complete selflessness. And how beautiful and how good he is. In the cross, Jesus served you. And so my only question, really, is will you let him? Have you? Have you given up trying to impress God on your own, thrown in the towel and say, I quit, I need Jesus. I'm counting on him alone. Doesn't matter how many times I hit my knees and cry. Doesn't matter what I do to try and be better. I know I can never be good enough. Jesus, I'm counting on your goodness to erase my badness, to restore everything I need with my heavenly father. He loves you that much. Have you ever said that to him? If not, what's holding you back? Today's the day. This is when new stuff starts. You could quit your life of self-reliance today, cast all of it on Jesus, and say, I just want you. If you haven't, don't leave here today without doing it. We're going to sing a song in just a bit. It says, not I, but Christ in me i got two things for you. So if you have done that, and if you know that you are saved, and that when your eyes close, you know you're going to heaven because of Christ's righteousness given to you, if that's you, you can stand and sing this with complete clarity and confidence going, yes. But if you've never done that, I just want you to sit. It's okay. Or you can stand. It doesn't matter. And have a moment with the Lord. He wants to meet with you. He wants to speak with you. And this could be the time where you go, okay, Jesus, I just want you. I just want you. I'm done with myself. I just want you. Don't let today go by without making that choice if you haven't already. It's the best decision you're ever gonna make. Let me pray. Father, we say thank you again for your profound servanthood on our behalf when we didn't deserve it, but we needed it. When we couldn't figure it out, Lord, you stepped in and you took care of our deepest need. So Father, I wanna ask, would you work? in our lives right now. Would you bring confidence to those that are doubting this morning? I know so many are. God, would you speak kindly to those of us who feel the weight of judgment and shame? Would you point us to the cross? For those that need encouragement, Lord, I pray that Jesus would be that this morning, that your gospel would be good news. Father, we love you. Thank you for the cross. In Jesus' name.
0: Thanks again for joining us. May you go out into your places and spaces making much of Jesus every day to everyone.